Ephesians chapter 6, and beginning at verse 10, and we'll read to the end of, end of the book, verse 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the redness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Uh, do sit down and let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. As we uh, come now, Lord, to your word, uh, we pray, Father, that you would grant us freedom from distractions Uh, we pray, uh, Father, that you would help me to, as the Apostle Paul here prayed for himself, you'd help me to pray, uh, to preach your word uh, boldly, with clarity, and in the power of your spirit. We pray, Lord, that my words would be pleasing to you. And we pray, uh, Father, that all the thinking of our hearts would be pleasing to you too. And as we come now, Lord, to the end of this book of Ephesians, we ask, Lord, that its message that you have designed for it to have would sink deep into our hearts as individuals and as a church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
when I was uh, sharing with someone that I was going to be speaking on the armor of God, they let me know about a piece of Christian subculture of which I was completely unaware. Apparently, uh, back in the 1980s or so, there was a cartoon called Bible Man. Some of you may have even watched it. It intrigued me, so I went to the internet and Google and YouTube and all that and see if I can find any excerpts from Bible Man and pictures of Bible Man. Bible Man was a sort of Christian superhero who uh, used these various pieces of the armor of God and dressed in, uh, I suppose we could call it spandex. <laughs> the beginning of the cartoons, uh, Bible Man, uh, the, uh, there was a, a little sort of limerick or a repeated line or refrain or, or, or something like that uh, that went roughly speaking like this. Ready the chamber. You see, he had a special place that he went into to, like, Superman get changed into Bible Man. See. Ready the chamber. And he would hop into the chamber and there'd be, like, smoke or something like that. And then the door would open after the transformation had taken place. And there would be Bible Man. The challenge with this sort of passage is not only is it so familiar, it's often being almost caricatured. The devil, really? Spiritual warfare, really? It's hard for any of us to get our minds around it. We live in a sophisticated, scientific, educated community. We live in a sophisticated world. We're no longer living in first century times. The devil? It isn't helped by the fact that some people have misused teaching about the devil historically. You think of the Salem witch trials. Cotton Mather, who controversially, with a great Puritan leader, controversially was involved somehow or other in the Salem uh, witch trials, said, he who denies that there is a devil is surely under the influence of the devil. Well, maybe. But then you read the story of the Salem witchcraft trials, and you realize that, well, as C.S. Lewis puts it, the devil is equally pleased if we become too fascinated by him as if we deny his existence altogether. I've always enjoyed what Martin Luther said, where he said, if being attached, attacked by the devil, use the word of God, and if the word of God won't work, try laughter. The devil is a proud devil. He can't stand being laughed at. Two young children were debating whether the devil actually existed. And one young child said to the other, no, he certainly doesn't exist. And the other young child said, yes, he does. He's, it's all over the Bible. The, it, it, it's clear that the devil exists. 
And the other young child said, no, he, he, he doesn't. He'll, listen to me. He'll, he'll turn out to be like, like uh, just a mythical uh, being that doesn't really exist. The devil? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, said he was convinced that the source of many of the weaknesses of the contemporary church in his day was that the church had forgotten the devil. John Stott said, behind the appearances of this world, there's an unseen spiritual warfare. And so as we look at this passage together with uh, intensity but not weirdness, How are we to analyze it? Let me suggest a simple way of thinking about it together. And that is, uh, first of all, the, the armor, the whole armor, and what it, what it is. What is this whole armor? Is it like Bible man? What is it? And then uh, listen to the call to stand, which is the main thrust of what the apostle is saying here. So first of all, uh, what is this whole armor the apostle Paul here talks about? Clearly is something he wants us to understand. Uh, Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Uh, Verse 13, he repeats himself, therefore take up or put on the whole armor of God. The whole armor of God is in, uh, the whole armor is in, in Greek one word, panoplia, It means all defensive and every offensive weapon. The whole armor. In summary, the whole armor of God, let me give it to you in just two words. It is his victory. What the Apostle Paul is urging us to do here is to not fight for his victory, but to fight from his victory. The armor of God, his victory. So he tells us to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. The strength of his might is almost certainly a Hebraism. It's an emphasis of the strength of his might. It refers back specifically to the resurrection power of Jesus that Paul uh, talked about in chapter 1. He uses the same phrase there about Jesus' resurrection. The strength of his might in the raising of Jesus from the dead. That strength is ours, church, if we understand what the whole armor of God is. And so he, as is familiar, goes through the different pieces of the armor from verse 14. Typically, the way this is taught is it's usually said that the Apostle Paul was in jail and uh, he's in chains. He says it in just a moment. And therefore, as he's chained to a Roman guard, He's using the imagery of the, the Roman pieces of, uh, of military equipment to teach the spiritual lesson. I'm sure there's some, I suppose there, must, there probably is some truth to that. 
But more insightfully, the Apostle Paul now is using that image of armor to reflect and underline God's victory that he's already been teaching to the Ephesians and the network of churches. Uh, When he says, therefore, uh, stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, well, truth is something he's been already teaching them about. Chapter 1, verse 13, if you have a Bible open, you can see. He says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, He's already been describing the word of of truth. Or chapter 4 and uh, verse uh, 15. Rather speaking, the truth in in love. And then uh, he says, uh, chapter 4, verse 21. Assuming that you've heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus Or chapter 4, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So this truth is the truth of God. That we are to believe and speak. The breastplate of uh, of righteousness. Well, that also he's... Uh, described uh, 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 quite carefully beforehand. Uh, Chapter 4 and uh, verse uh, uh, 24. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the righteousness of God is God's declared righteousness. Those of us who understand the, the teaching of the Bible about being justified by faith, the declaration that we're right in God is God's declared righteousness that then we need to live in the light of. So he says, uh, uh, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, it's a little hidden in the translation, but it's actually the the same word. Uh, Verse 7 of chapter 5, Therefore do not become partners of them, that is those who are not righteous. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right. Righteousness. So Christian, if you are a Christian, you've been declared right in Christ, and therefore walk in the right way. And then uh, he talks about this gospel of peace. Well, again, he's already described what he means by the gospel of peace. This, I think, is the most fascinating part of it. Chapter 2, verse uh, uh, 14. He He said, for he, that is Jesus, is our peace. He has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that is, between Jews and Gentiles, now all nations in Christ. Find their reconciliation, their peace. Reconciled to him, we're reconciled to each other. How? By abolishing the law of commandments, express and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace. Preached there, the word is evangelized or gospel preached. A peace. 
So the gospel of peace is the proclamation of the peace that Jesus has won at the cross, that if we believe in him, then we are both reconciled to God and therefore reconciled to each other. That's the gospel of peace. And then the, uh, the shield of faith. Well, again, he's already talked about faith quite a lot, of course. Uh, chapter 2 and uh, verse, uh, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is one of the hardest lessons for people who grow up, who have grown up in religious homes to grasp. It's by faith. Trust. Open hands. Well, we need to put that piece of armor on as well when we're fighting the spiritual battle. The shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That dart that comes into your mind and says, you're not a good Christian, call yourself a Christian. Look what you did. You put up the shield of faith. You're saved by what Jesus has done. Not by what you do. Well, the Apostle Paul has already taught on all these pieces of, uh, of, of the armor to trust, and then you're saved. Now, he describes uh, faith a little bit later in chapter 3 and, and, uh, verse, and verse 12. Well, if we're saved by faith, how then do we have access to God and have the intimacy of an experience of God? So our quiet times in the morning are not simply reading a few verses uh, and then feeling checkbox, we've done our duty. But we experience him. How do we have that access? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us. Chapter 3, verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Oh, Lord, this morning, I feel so far distant from you, you might say, on a Monday morning when you're trying to do your quiet times. But I trust you. I lean on you through our faith in him. And he says uh, something similar in verse 17. So that Christ, of chapter 3, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and ground in love may then have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Do not believe those who say that the way to have a high experience of God is to move past just trust. Oh, no, no, no. The way to have a higher experience of God is simply to trust. It's not some magical new technique. It's him through faith. Or uh, chapter 4 and verse uh, 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Well, that's the objective side. 
There's a subjective side of faith, trusting, but then we're trusting him and the truth about him. Uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon said, he who is the enemy of Christian doctrine is the enemy of Christian practice. If you're new to College Church, you'll find, if you do keep on coming to the church, that we are not shy about preaching, teaching, doctrine. As the world gets more confused, as our media gets more convoluted, it is increasingly significant and important that we know what we believe. Hence that summer forum, the Apostles' Creed. Hence, we're going to study the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Who does that kind of stuff anymore? Who actually takes the time to go through the Bible? Because the Bible is the Word of God, as we'll see. Paul talks about that in just a moment. And then he describes the helmet of salvation, which he's also talked about earlier, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, uh, chapter 1 and uh, verse uh, 13. In him you also, when you heard the Word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. It's the, it's the Word of God, the sword of the, of the, uh, of the Spirit. Or chapter 5 and uh, verse 6. Well, we've had the word of God, the gospel of your salvation. Chapter 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Oh, how we need to make sure we are undeceived today. To have the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, active in our minds and in our hearts and in the way we Therefore, in the way we think. And then uh, praying. Praying at all times in the Spirit. There's, all, there's been all sorts of conversation down through the years as to what the Apostle Paul actually means by praying in the Spirit. But once again, he's already told us. He's already showed us. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you look earlier in his, in his letter, he's already showed them what he means by praying in the Spirit. Um, uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 15, look how he prays. For this reason, because of I, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, for this reason, because I, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of God may, uh, glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance and in the saints, and so on. That's praying in the spirit. That's what it means, that kind of praying. And uh, he, he shows uh, the, them again uh, what praying the Spirit means in chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. That, that's praying in the Spirit. He's already, he's already shown us what it is. That's the model pray like that so as we think and with, as we go through this passage we're first of all doing like the whole armor of God and then what it means to stand in the whole armor of God we'll look at that in a moment but first of all the whole armor of God it's, it's not just looking at the different pieces of the military equipment of the Roman world it's seeing what this armor of God means in the context of the book of Ephesians and what it means is he has won the victory 
And we fight not for his victory, but from his victory. But I think in some ways, even more amazingly, the the Apostle Paul almost certainly has in his mind a famous text from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 59. I'll read it for you. He saw, this is the Lord, the Lord saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind or the spirit of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, the redeemer, of course, being Jesus. This is what's been described here. And as for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your seed or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth forevermore. All fulfilled in Jesus who won the victory. And when the apostle Paul now teaches what's the whole armor of God, he wants them to be filled in their mind with who Jesus is. Because friends, don't you remember that in the book of Ephesians, he's urging them to be cognizant and aware of their position in the heavenly places, that Jesus has won the victory. They are seated in the heavenly realms. They have the victory. That's the whole armor of God. His victory. One of the great early Christian leaders, Polycarp, Uh, was martyred in A.D. 155. And when he is a famous description of his martyrdom called the Martyrdom of Polycarp that was written very soon afterwards. And in his martyrdom, there there are various famous lines. Uh, One is uh, uh, he he was told to uh, denounce atheism because at the time Christians, because they didn't believe in the pagan gods, were called atheists because they didn't believe in those gods. And so Polycarp, who was by that stage 86 years old or so, uh, still very much had his wits and his brains with him, looked at all the crowds around him in the, in the, in the amphitheater where he was about to be martyred and said, looking at them, away with the atheists, pointing to them. And they said, I'm going to bring you fire if you do not recant. And he said, well, why should I be frightened of this fire when the the, the fire that will burn forever is the fire that one should be frightened of? But what gave Polycarp strength was he said, the Lord has already accomplished this. He has won. He has the victory. to win the spiritual battle which he has already won to apply this truth that that, that we need a grasp that that his victory is accomplished after World War II was completed there were a number of soldiers who 
stayed in some of the small islands of the Pacific for many, many years, not realizing that the, the war had ended. The most famous of them stayed in one little island uh, in the jungle for almost 30 years. And when an explorer discovered this soldier living on his own in the jungle, still thinking that the, in 1972, still thinking that the war was going on, he refused to believe that the war had ceased unless his commanding officer actually came and told him the war had ended. And this explorer went back to Japan, found the commanding officer, brought him to the, to the island, and, said, and, and, and the commanding officer told the soldier the war is done, and then he believed it. Our victory is not in doubt. It's won. And therefore, put on the whole armor of God. His armor, his victory. But you say, well, doesn't the Apostle Paul say that we should stand? Well, he certainly does say that we should stand. And what does that mean, that he wants us to stand? He emphasizes it, doesn't he? Uh, stand against the schemes of the devil. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. What does it mean to stand? It means confidence. There's one story in the Old Testament where the king is overly confident thinking that he's going to win the victory when there's no reason that he should win the victory. And his opponent says, let not him who boasts as they are putting on the armor like one who is taking it off. In other words, the victory is not yet secure. But it is secure. Confidence. It means courage. You think to yourself, there are all those Goliaths out there. There's the culture. There are family challenges. There's the mental health challenges. But of course, the story of David and Goliath is fulfilled in our great King David's greatest son, Jesus, who has won the victory. And he wins it for us. So we have courage. But most of all, it means calmness. I hesitate to say, be calm and carry on, but the book of Exodus, when the people leave Egypt, they go out in battle array with the armor on. And when the Egyptians are coming to get them, and there's no way forward. The, the Egyptian army, the, the greatest superpower at the time with all its power on one side and an unpassable sea on the other side. 
Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent, calm. Stand. What does that mean practically, you say, to stand? It means we don't change our doctrine and what we believe. C.S. Lewis, in one of his lesser-known writings, once said, we worship the one who said that heaven and earth will change with the times, but my word will not change with the times. It means that when we look around and we think there are better places to live or there are better circumstances that we have, we realize that we stand. We stand in the truth of God. We stand in the victory of God. We stand certain that he will win. We don't run away scared. I've always liked the uh, story of the lion tamer in a zoo. And he went into the cage and poked this lion with a stick. And the lion sort of growled a little bit, but nothing much happened. And he stood there sweeping not concerned about the lion in the corner. Someone watching said, how, how can you do this? How can you, be, how, how can you be so brave? There's a lion right there. What, 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 what are you doing? Surely you should get out, run away. How can you be so calm? And the, uh, the uh, person in the cage with the, the broom sweeping the floor very calmly smiled and said, oh, he's an old lion. He growls, but he ain't got no teeth. Oh, the devil may give you a good gumming, but that's about it. Yeah, I understand, Bible man. But this passage is not calling us to be superheroes. It's telling us that the superhero has won the victory. And in him, we need only to stand. So in that light, let's stand together. And uh, we will pray, and then the musicians will uh, lead us in our last song, which I think you'll see is, is very much related to the same, the same theme, the whole armor of God and then stand. So let's pray. Our Lord God, we, we pray that you would grant us the vision to see that as 
frail and human as we are, in you, uh, we already have the victory. Not then, Lord, that we should be passive and not do anything, but that we don't need to fight for your victory. We fight from your victory and stand in your truth. Stand, therefore, and see the salvation of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.